Welcome back to Ladywood, where two huge fans of Deadwood and one newbie discuss the show through a feminist lens. Uh, I'm Lynn Sternberger. I'm a television writer. I'm Brandi Sperry, also a writer here in L.A. Uh, my name is Tita Sean, a stand-up comedian and writer in L.A. And today we are discussing the second episode of the third season, I Am Not the Fine Man You Take Me For, written by David Milch and Regina Carrado, and directed by Dan, I'm going to butcher his last name, Adias, A-T-T-I-A-S, another new director for the Deadwood family. This was his only episode, but he does seem to direct a lot for HBO. I noticed that David Milch wrote the first, or co-wrote the first two episodes of this season. I mean, I, we always assume that he's, you know, done a pass on it as is normal in the TV world. But yeah, he's taking credit on these, which in the early seasons, a lot of them he didn't take credit on at all. Yeah, mm. and it, when he does, you can always kind of get the sense it's his episode because his titles are ridiculous. <laughs> this episode first aired June 18, 2006, and in it, the candidates for sheriff and mayor deliver their campaign speeches. As Swearingen refuses to genuflect, Hearst gives him a personal demonstration of his influence and power. Doc Cochran tends to an ailing Alma as Ellsworth's fears grow. Jane shares her exploits with Custer with the schoolchildren at Martha's behest. And Andy has an uncomfortable reunion with Tolliver. That's a whole lot. Can we just start by talking about the opening sequence where we get to see after this hoople head falls off the stand that's been built for the mayoral and sheriff speeches. They're, they're not sure where this dead body came from. So Dan and Johnny and Al go out to investigate. This was hysterical. <laughs> um, I, I wish that this had been the first scene of the first episode that had been the introduction back then yeah. what is seeing johnny's flap open in his like onesie pajamas <laughs> i think opening on this note would have been like the perfect encapsulation of deadwood and then i gotta say dan must sleep in the nude because he went for pants whereas johnny already <laughs> had his pjs on so he went for boots brandy you've thought about this way too much <laughs> tmi for dan to saying he had pa- he went for pants but no shoes in the muck in that muck that's mostly horse shit? I mean, oh God. yeah, you know he was in a hurry and you know he needed to cover up his Johnson. It does say a lot about the guys. Like Al um, put on his suit over his disgusting long johns. Um, so <laughs> he was like, oh, if I'm going to be in public, I've got to look the part of the upstanding business owner I am. This was a funny episode. Yeah, I mean, that scene is really funny. It also serves to show how paranoid they are right now about how Hearst is going to react to Al having sort of demonstrated his own power at the end of the last episode by postponing the elections. Uh, they they really still don't know what the hell this guy might do. And they seem quite relieved that it, this seems to be just some idiot who fell off the platform. Yeah, we're not done with Hearst, though. He and Al engage in, uh, it's like a chess match. Um, he yeah. sends a letter to Al, which is a very hard to figure out sketch, and Al believes it's a map. Turns out he is staging a confrontation inside of the gem with, I guess, four different players. Al realizes what's happening, has clued Dan and Johnny in on it, and ends up slitting a guy's throat. Dan kills mm-hmm. another one of them. It's Hearst giving them the information ahead of time because he's making good on what happened in the last episode. He is giving Al a chance to, quote, righteously kill the same guy who 
committed the murder in the last episode so that they're back on an even playing field. He is sacrificing his men to to try to make good with Al. Yeah, Dan sums it up. He says that Hurst is showing Al his ass. <laughs> so if that wasn't clear before, now we are to believe that Hurst is trying to even things out. I do love Johnny and Dan going through it over and over because... I was almost as confused as they were, and I felt like oh, it was sure. almost permission for the audience to be a little confused about what's going on. I appreciated that. To be completely honest, I did not get it until Brandy just explained it to me. <laughs> because <laughs> I was like, why is her sending a Sudoku to Al? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> They're playing tic-tac-toe with the captain, like, taking the yeah. letters back and forth. <laughs> I'm so glad that Brandy seems to understand these things, because I agree with you, Sita. They're complicated um and al always seems to know what's going on but like bless him because i i certainly don't as usual i watched it twice (laughs) that's the trick i watch them through whatever we're talking about just like to watch it and then the second time i'll watch it and i'll like pause and take notes and be like okay this is what happened in this scene this is what happened in this scene like, that's the level we're at, trying to understand Alan Hurst and all of this back and forth. Uh, elsewhere in town, Doc is wanting to perform a procedure on Alma because she is not improving, I guess, with bed rest. Something's gone. Something's changed. And uh, this sets into motion a whole bunch of stuff. Alma and Ellsworth discuss her affairs. And we learn that if Alma dies, uh, Sophia gets everything, inherits all of her wealth. Um, However, Bullock is going to become the caretaker of Sophia, which is news to, uh, I, what? Yeah. The executor of her estate as well. So again, Alma's explanation for this, people are not upfront about why they're doing what they're doing. It has to come later that we understand why they're doing what they're doing. And I don't really buy her thing of like, well, we remember from last season that Ellsworth hates Hearst because of the safety conditions that caused him to witness right. a bunch of men die and be involved in rescuing only like three out of 50 men. And so she says she knows Hearst is coming after her holdings and she doesn't want Ellsworth to have to deal with that, basically, which is just mm-hmm. like, are you fucking kidding me? The man just married you. You yeah. might be either dying or at the very least losing the pregnancy that was the reason why he married you. And now yes. you're going to fucking take away Sophia from him? What the fuck? We're meant to believe she's doing it in for unselfish reasons, yeah, like for, for, for good, whatever. high-minded reasons. However, she could have just fucking told that to his face instead of letting right. him feel like she doesn't trust him to be the father to this kid that he very clearly loves i mean it was for dramatic reasons i imagine but it still made me be like you dummy don't be such an asshole it's like uh <laughs> in asian dramas uh we call it a uh, noble idiot idiocracies because it's always like somebody making a greater sacrifice but like at the detriment of their own happiness to seem like they're more noble and the the usual way that this is played out is like you lie about the fact that you have cancer so you're like oh i'm not gonna tell the person i love the most that i have cancer <laughs> Oh God. this is like a similar play it's like yeah it's it's a very dramatic kind of like kind of trope that i've seen before there's no reason why this couldn't be split like guardianship of sophia as a parent and being the conservator of her estate do not have to be the same thing it's yeah just, exactly agreed 
And I would love to see Ellsworth and Seth having to be Sophia's two dads. You know? That would <laughs> come right there. <laughs> oh my god. That would be amazing. <laughs> Not that I want Alma to die, but you know, in that in that universe where she does. Two men in a hoople head. <laughs> two men in a square head. <laughs> square head. That's right. Out of this sort of turn of events, we did get this scene between Alma where she's explaining her reasoning to Bullock. Um, he, of course, has found out through Sophia that Mama is sick. And eventually he gets called to her bedside to discuss her affairs. But we know that they've got so many. They have feelings with a capital F for each other. And she ends their meeting by saying, I regret nothing, which I was like, yes, Dean. And then he doesn't respond. Like, this drives me nuts. I'm like, at some point, can he throw her a bone and be like, I still love you. I'm sorry. Like, all he's done is stare at her and mm-hmm. offer to leave camp and then prance around with another woman. I mean, yeah. she seems... Like, she has so much faith in their love. And I'm like, at this point, I'd be, like, not wanting to have anything to do with him. Because, I mean, does she even know about the shit-kicking he gave EB because of her? Like, that's the only thing he's done recently to show that he still loves her and is devoted to her. Like, where I would be pissed. I would be like, give me something. I might die because of the baby you put in me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you can't even say, I still love you. Fuck Fuck this. Fuck Seth in this scene. <laughs> I mostly agree with you, Brandy. On the other hand, I don't think that either, like, yes, he makes eyes at her or whatever, but I don't think he's leading her on. And I actually think that both of them are trying to end what they had. Like, I know that you want them together and that things aren't necessarily, like, settled between them, but I do think that both of them have made choices to not reignite anything. So they're going to continue to make those choices. I I agree with that just because the scene right before Sophia meets up with Martha and Seth at the schoolhouse, there's that like sort of moment of domestic tension between uh, between Seth and Martha where he like strokes her back. And then they have uh, like a moment where uh, Seth teases Martha, like teases her about her tea, which we've never seen before. They've never had like a moment of humor together. So he should feel even more guilty then that like that he's flirting over tea while almost dying. I mean, he should feel mm. guilty. I think that's the, but that's sort of the twist in the story. I think it's like he's kind of moving on with Martha and boom, we get hit with a story of Alma's health. So now Seth feels extra guilty because he's thinking about moving on. But now Alma's mortality reminds him of the great love that he has for her. I wish he could do something with that guilt instead of just walk away silently. Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. Elsewhere in town, Joni checks on Sai again. Um, honestly, I just am so fucking bored of these two that I kind of mentally check out in these scenes. He's trying to play like he's found God. She admits she nearly killed herself. It, but what what's going on in this scene? I don't know. And I mean, it's just more manipulation back and forth. But as I said, I watched these twice, but I do tend to fast forward the side scenes the second time around because <laughs> it's just a lot. It's, and then later his confrontation with Andy is just it goes on and on and on. Sai got fucking knifed in the gut in the finale of the second season. Why could it not have opened with his 
bur- unattended burial. <laughs> and then there's a power vacuum because the Bell Union no longer has an owner. And we get either Joni stepping in and rising to the occasion and becoming a female proprietor, or if that's so outside of the realm of historical possibility, somebody comes back that they had dealings with, or, you know, one she she becomes the true owner and spirit, but then has a straw man. Like this could have been so cool. It could have jumped them right out of her fucking depression. He should he should be dead. Well, I also think that right now it does feel like even if we love Sai as a character, they're struggling to keep him in the narrative with what's going down with the powerful men in camp. And not just because he's bedridden now. I mean, we had some very interesting stuff with Al bedridden in season two, right? But without Walcott, he is untethered to the rest of what's going on. So it's just like, why am I even watching all of this? It feels very inconsequential compared to what the other men of the camp are dealing with. Completely. That's a really good point, Brandy, because I think one of the reasons that Al's storyline works so well is the based on the strength of the relationships around him. Like, we care about Al with Johnny and Dan and Trixie mm-hmm. and Jewel. Like, we care about how they react to his absence, whereas, like, we don't give a fuck if Con Stapleton or Leon are feeling mm-hmm. adrift because because Cy Tolliver isn't around, you know? It's just like, and then leading to that scene with Andy Kramed, where Andy comes back into the saloon after having stabbed the proprietor of the Bella Union. And he just kind of wanders in, and I don't quite know why he's there. He's there to ask for forgiveness, but it doesn't really feel like he's really asking for forgiveness. And then Cy Tolliver just overacts for like three minutes. <laughs> You know, yeah, it was just like such a bad scene. I, I couldn't for the life of me explain why that scene existed. I think this is the single biggest problem I have with season three so far that I can see a different version. But instead, it feels like they're retreading and it's and it's slowing down the whole narrative. In happier news, Jane gives herself another bath. This is becoming like a thing. Just every time she's trying to sober up and be proper, she t- she gets a bath. She seems to enjoy the bath this time around. She she didn't have like a little rubber ducky or anything, but she's <laughs> definitely she's having more fun her feet with a it. little bit. <laughs> <laughs> she's a day off the bottle. She's trying to sober up and uh, get ready to talk to the school children, and then she does. She and she doesn't swear the whole time. She doesn't have to pay herself a penny or whatever. <laughs> Martha looked at her with like a little warning glance at one point. They were, they were definitely, she was adjusting herself. She was uh, reading the room tone, but she's awesome. I mean, it felt a little bit like when you're in elementary school and you go to like in Pennsylvania, we had this place called the Appreciation Land Museum and it's people in, you know, dress from the time period and you learn how to dip candles and they talk to you about (laughs) in character about the hardships of life on the frontier or whatever. This is what it feels like. (laughs) But uh, I guess she's not putting on an act. I I really like at the end of that scene when she makes this offhanded comment, she's Martha's like, Oh, Jane was very brave to speak to us today. And Jane basically calls Martha brave back as well. And Martha is sort of taken aback by that but it's just like this little line of dialogue that i really mm-hmm. liked oh for sure that is definitely up there with the most feminist kind of interactions for the episode 
Yeah, it's like Jane's interpretation of events because a custard is such like a larger than life figure. I assume even back then where, you know, he was the killer of so many frightful Indians or whatever for the for the frontiersmen. And Jane really deflates that whole myth for all of the kids. You know, like she just takes down this like revered military figure. And she's like, no, he was just really puffy. And I called him Armstrong because he was like a puffy dude that didn't listen to anyone. And that's why he's dead. You know, like, I don't think that point of view would have been sustained by, like, you know, one of Custer's men who wanted to preserve his legacy. And Jane's just less concerned about that. Mm -hmm. I thought that there was some sort of innuendo with the Armstrong thing. And that's when Martha was like, you can't tell them why you really call him Armstrong. So and she made something up. Did I over interpret that scene? What was that? That he's gay? No, I I thought it was a dick joke or something. I don't know. Oh, I, I was like, well, paired with talking about his pretty curls or whatever. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't get any innuendo. I don't know why she called him Armstrong. Who knows why Jane does anything she does. But she does see people very well, right? So that's like mm-hmm. her thing is she can sort of see through people's bullshit. And I think... Mm-hmm. She can also see through their armor a little bit, which is what she sees when she looks at Martha and she realizes like that this must be really hard for her in some ways teaching all these kids. Totally. I would say that Jane and Doc are the beating hearts of the the show, really. And Charlie, maybe a a little bit. He gets a really excellent scene with Joni in this episode where he's uh, basically saying, you know, you have lost your your self-respect but you're an upstanding and wonderful person and you should listen to the people who tell you this because they're your friends and they see what you can't see and I was like oh Charlie yeah uh, he doled out wisdom to Seth in the last episode and now he's here talking to Joni like he's really becoming like the wise owl of Deadwood Mm. I also like that he saw the double murder in the morning and decided to go to breakfast instead (laughs) (laughs) You can't solve murders if you're hungry. He's the deputy sheriff. He saw the bodies. He was like, nope, go to breakfast. He actually turned somebody around at the door and was like, you don't want to go in there. That's some mess. <laughs> it was quite funny. There's Al. We get to see his up-close knife work, which is always a thrill. Hanging onto that bloody guy. He looks sort of thrilled with what had just gone down. And then, yeah, just like, well, we'll let that play out on its own. <laughs> Nothing like a throat slitting to invigorate the blood, you know? Like Exactly. Really get the day going. Um, oh, and Saul buys the house. It actually happens. I guess it wasn't such a terrible idea. And now he seems excited about it. And Trixie does too. I love that she kind of like only gives him a little small I've acknowledged you smile. But when she turns around, she has a big grin on her face. Such a cute little moment. <laughs> Saul's so like, we don't have to move in together. I'm just telling you that I bought a house. He's a good boyfriend. Oh my God. What we have not talked about is on the surgery because oh. all of this other stuff is playing out with this sort of very sobering event underway. So it's Doc and Trixie and Ellsworth helps them with setup, but then leaves uh, like a proper gentleman husband <laughs> for the actual procedure and uh, we don't know if Alma's going to survive this thing. Well, it seems by the end that she has. But as we know, this is frontier medicine. Like she might get an infection. She might anything could still happen, even though it's, everything seems to go OK with the surgery. Do we think this is a DNC? 
the implication was that her, she's going to lose the pregnancy and it would be best to vacate it before, you know, she actually has like a, a dead fetus inside of her. I mean, all of this is very spoken around, but that was that was what I thought was the implication was like, it's better to get it over with now to avoid further complications. It relates back to like in season, is it season one or two where we learned that Alma was told that she couldn't get pregnant? Last and season. so. Yeah. So, so this is a really like kind of a payoff from that story because it's not that she can't get pregnant. It's that pregnancy mm-hmm. is dangerous for her. Well, it's weird. Like they had said, it's not dangerous, but it will be painful. I mean, we never really got a hold on what exactly was the ailment that she had that would make for a difficult pregnancy, but it seems that this is, this is it. And she wanted another child so bad. So it's, it's really quite heartbreaking. And then if she and Ellsworth were moving towards any kind of like de- real domestic arrangement marriage here, I think she ruined it with what she said about Sophia. So it's like if they were ever going to get to the kind of the place where Seth and Martha are getting to so that perhaps she could try again. I, I don't know if I think she she kind of destroyed that ironically. Do you actually think there's a universe in which Ellsworth and Alma bone? Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. Really? I think so. If we given time, given the way that she looks at him when he's with Sophia, like she's going to get past the like lust she feels for Seth and she's going to have other needs, you know? Yeah. Huh. And Ellsworth is the opposite of Brom. He's not an idiot. He's like very competent. He's like, I know I'm te- like fan club Ellsworth over here. But at the same time, you can sort of see how it would not be like a physical lust that overwhelms you, but it would slowly kind of grow over time. Very remains of the day is what I would say. <laughs> oh yes, I think like there's something sexy about patience and care as well, right? Yeah. You know, it, sex doesn't always have to just spring from, like, animal lust. I definitely think that they could have gotten there. Maybe it would have taken a year or two, but I think, like, yeah. now his his trust in her is going to be broken in some way. If yeah. only we, we had received more seasons so that we could have seen how that could have unfolded. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm surprised by that answer. I just, I didn't see it that way. But you've convinced me you've both convinced me that it could have had she not listen to the straight women Ellsworth has appeal (laughs) (laughs) I'm not arguing that Brahm would be like absolutely the worst to bone especially because he kind of treated her like a mother to him like his mother yeah once you've had that I mean a lot of stuff is gonna look much better right okay so Alma seems to it seems to be precarious but she's not dead and then we get in a sort of quick succession a few other crazy things one is another side scene um which i'm tempted to not discuss at all i don't think let's just move on i mean honestly and then al meets with hearst Right. So this is while the speeches are going on, which are almost comical after all this buildup, how few people are even bothering to listen to them. And then Al goes over to Hearst, not knowing what he's walking into. And it it doesn't go well. It really doesn't go well. He holds his ground and Hearst cold cocks him and then chops off his finger. Is that what ha- like is that what happened? I was trying to remember. I was like, did he yeah. just like smash his hand? Like how bad? He took his axe, his this? like his mini like hatchet yes, for yeah, his little. Mining. It's a pickaxe, yeah. I think, and he landed it on 
Al's hand, and then all we see is the blood stain as it's going down his horrible suit um, because yeah. he's holding his head high and um, in, in incredible pain, which, oh my God, Dan. Her <laughs> That's face. a face he makes when he's hurt. <laughs> I love that. Dan loves Al so much, guys. So much. And then this is going to be yet another thing that's going to cement Seth and Al together because as annoyed as Al was with Seth losing his temper, they have to stay on the same team. And you can see that Seth is mad at the way Hearst conducts himself, but he's also like, there's a little bit of a like, what happened to my friend yeah. in, the, in the end there, yeah. you know, like it's a little bit specifically mad on Al's behalf right. besides just the poor conduct and just like hating this cocksucker. Yeah. I felt like considering how there were some light scenes that I really thought were delightful, our regulars are really taking a, a beating in this episode. Uh, emotionally, mm-hmm. Joni, Seth and Ellsworth are all pretty fucked with. And then physically, both Alma and Al are in peril. A lot of drama. Yeah. I definitely think that this episode helped to put the first episode in context for, like, why we needed so much setup of all these things. Like, definitely a lot more feels like it happens in this episode. And there's a lot of peril going forward. Definitely. I wish this had been, I wish this could have been the first episode, I guess, is what I I think. But I also thought that it was a little clearer that it had been co-written by a woman um, as opposed to the first episode. There were there were very strong scenes between the female characters and just depicting an abortion, a frontier abortion. It was a very powerful thing to do on a popular show. Mm -hmm. It was done with a whole lot of sort of seriousness and I don't think anybody would be like how dare she have this well I know people would be like you know people absolutely but, would be, but yeah. I, and she faces it she makes the decision very quickly when she realizes what the actual she takes the doc's advice she doesn't protest she doesn't do whatever and I actually would have thought that some version a worse version of this would include a lot of like praying to God to let her keep her child and all of this before it happens. A lesser version would. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But she's just, she faces the actual situation and makes the actual decision that makes sense quickly and gets it over with. And I appreciated that a lot. I thought it was feminist. um, Yeah. Without Mm -hmm. announcing itself. Quite. We can sort of see the practicality of having like a frontier abortion when Trixie says she's had seven before she never did it for i'm gonna die if i carry a baby reasons right and probably not this far along either yeah but you know that's not to say that trixie isn't trixie's allowed to get whatever abortion she wants to get that's my point of view totes um other great lines or scenes you want to talk about i just want to put a shout out there for dan calling the captain that sea creature looking motherfucker (laughs) (laughs) he does look like a walrus that's amazing I mean, I really thought that the simplicity of Sophia saying my mother's sick and then going to Mm -hmm. Seth and seeing how stricken he looked was very powerful delivery. Like Sophia as a messenger was that worked for me really well. Um, Again, on things that just made me laugh, um, Adams being, you know, up in arms that that the murders took place when he wasn't there. So it wasn't like a decision you made to have the murders while I was signing the papers. Like he's just such a teenager sometimes. (laughs) I wanted to be there for the murders, Al. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was overall, I I liked it better 
than the last episode. And I thought it was overall pretty fantastic installation in Deadwood. Yeah. I think this is similar to what we've thought about each season, which is that it does take a lot of setup to get this kind of huge narrative with all these threads going. And I'm always confident that it's, it's going to all come together, but once again, I think we said this about the second season, like it would have been nice to basically compress these first two episodes into one, maybe slightly longer episode and just get things going a little bit faster. But that's not how this show works. Right. I mean, if you had cut out all the Cy Tolliver, Leon, Constapleton scenes out of both episodes, I think you would have a fine show. <laughs> Yeah, that is a great 90 minute show. Yes, 100%. (laughs) I mean, it's a good thing to keep in mind as we approach the release of the movie. How are they going to do this? It's kind of got to stand alone. It's got to stand alone. And I feel like it's got to be a little bit quicker than a lot of these episodes are, right? If they're going to tell a full story in two hours rather than 12 hours. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting to see the way that that translates to a, a movie format. I have a question. What has Milch been doing since uh, Deadwood? Um, I mean, he had that show, John from Cincinnati, that was one season. Yeah, just because, I mean, television has changed so much since Deadwood ended that I I think about what that means in terms of coming back to this show like 10 years later. Like the just like the narrative, uh, like what the audience expects from a show is so different now than I think it was when Deadwood ended. Oh yeah. He also had that show Luck about racetrack stuff. Oh, and that, that was, was Ill- ill-fated. Well, both of those shows were ill-fated. I think John from Cincinnati was a little more of an interesting uh, exper- failed experiment, but I mean, Luck was... Didn't a horse die? I think two different horses died and that was why it never got a season two, but I mean, I watched it and it was kind of like trying to be modern Deadwood and just not working, so... John from Cincinnati was also the project that HBO passed uh, Mad Men on. That was the project they chose in favor. So, (laughs) it's also famous for that. (laughs) Big mistake. You know what? I'm fine with where Mad Men ended, because I don't think I need the sex position version of Mad Men. (laughs) I really don't. I don't need to see all of the monologues that Don Draper gave happening while he's getting a (laughs) blowjob. With a glass of scotch in his hand. So no thanks. I'm good with the basic cable version of that. <laughs> John Hamm selling Lucky Carton cigarettes while <laughs> having sex with a hooker and drinking. <laughs> <laughs> so but it would have been a ratings bonanza, I'm telling you. A oh, bonanza. I think they did just fine without. Unless it might have been a John Hamm full frontal situation. And then I can see Randy, what a perv. <laughs> I apologize, audience. I apologize. I'm always going to advocate for equal opportunity nudity between men oh, yes. and women, okay? Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, we, should, us we should be getting Seth taking a bath. That would be great. If there was any justice in this world. You know he bathes regularly, far more often than Jane does. Why aren't we seeing Show it? Show it. Shower scene. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Overall, quite enjoyable episode. I think we have really good stakes moving forward. And going to see how Al strikes back because he's not generally a man to sit there and take it and get fingers chopped off without some sort of retribution. So, no, I remember a little of some of what we're going to get in the next few episodes as this escalates and uh, culminating in one of Deadwood's most famous scenes of all time. So I'm I'm looking forward to that and to watching it, you know, through my fingers when it when it goes down. 
That's awesome because I don't remember shit. And Sita, of course, you will in the dark. Once it gets closer, you'll be like, oh, yeah. Oh, great. Scene. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> I get shivers. Okay. Um, so until then, you can find us on the Twitter at LadyWoodCast. Let us know, do you want to see Seth take a bath? <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? How do you feel about frontier abortion? Don't, I don't want to hear how you feel hear about that. <laughs> do not tweet us about abortion. You can find us individually. I'm at Lynn Sternberger. I'm at WeeBrandy, O-U-I-B-R-A-N-D-I. And I'm at Slowbear, S-L-O-B-E-A-R. Thanks for listening. Splish, splash, I was taking a bath. Long about a Saturday night. Yeah. Rubbed up, just relaxing in the tub. Thinking everything was all right. When I stepped out the tub, I put my feet on the floor. I wrapped the towel around me and I opened the door. And in a splish, splash, I jumped back in the bath. Well, I was out and know there was a party.